Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of Two Specialists. I'm Jane, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the added team come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, have you lost weight? Uh, no. That's just a little bit lighter, you know? Maybe it's the lighting. Maybe. They always say that the camera subtracts five pounds. Well, exactly, yeah. Yeah. I just think you're looking a little, not not a lot of weight, just like maybe, you know, one one thousandth of a kilogram. One gram. Yeah, you're looking a little gram negative. And what a coincidence, Callum, because uh, today we're going to be discussing the gram negatives. Now... The loyal listener will know that historically I've done the puns and now James given it a go. If you think James is the better punner, you could email Jane to idiotspodcasting <laughs> at gmail.com. You think Callum's a better punner. You don't need to say anything. We'll just assume that's right. Oh, damn. That's harsh, man. That's my first go. And I've had that in my head for weeks. Have you? Well, we've been planning this for weeks. So. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Well, today is the day we can't put it off any longer. We've talked about gram-positive cocci, we've talked about gram-negative cocci, we've talked about gram-positive bacilli, except for TB, I know, we'll get to it later. And now we need to talk about gram-negative bacilli. And we've been putting it off for a while, haven't we? Because it's just such a big group of this huge heterogeneous blob of organisms that is really difficult to get your head around. I find it difficult to get my head around. There's a lot to unpack it's difficult another thing we haven't done is anaerobes um, yeah i know so we sort of took a, a sort of dip into gram positive bacilli and we're also conscious that some of the ones we talked about were anaerobes but um y- you know uh that's fine we so, all make mistakes <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to those eventually well i almost thought that um thought of suggesting that we do the anaerobes just to put this off a little longer but i think it can't be put off any longer yeah i think these organisms are much more important than that anaerobes in general anaerobes yeah, aren't totally, unimportant yeah. if you're listening anaerobe reference lab but <laughs> we i think nobody's going to argue that if you say bacteria uh, most people i think would say e coli Public enemy number one, or maybe not public enemy because it's quite a normal bacteria to have in your gut. So mm. we should reframe that. So, James, what are we going to talk about here? So the next few episodes, we're going to uh, talk about the enterobacterales, and we're going to uh, define those in a few moments. And then we are going to uh, talk about the, the parvobacteria, so that's the small looking bacteria, and we're going to divide that into HASEC, the HASEC or a group of organisms that cause um, endocrit- culture-negative endocarditis, and non-HASECs. And then we're going to finish off with the glucose non-fermenting group, and they are uh, Pseudomonas, uh, Urcolderia, and Stenotrophomonas. Um, but let's start with a few definitions. So, Callum, why don't you, you know, talk about... Um, gram negatives and bacilli and rods and coliforms and things like that. I'd love to. So I'm going to start out simple, make it a bit more complicated as we go on. How complicated could it be? Well, quite complicated. So Mm -hmm. gram negative rods, gram negative bacilli. So they are elongated 
uh, organisms. They are uh, not circular. They're sort of rod-shaped, hence the name. That is the sort of term. I would say gram-negative bacilli generally. The other term that comes up a lot, uh, we use it on a lot of reports, particularly if there's just organisms that we haven't identified because we don't need to, is coliforms. And I think that's quite poorly understood. It's quite common to get, say, a wound swab from a leg and there's, uh, you know, coliforms isolated. And I would say the vast majority of people in the wards are, you know, I think there's a recognition that that's probably not important, but what it is, who knows? And I was teaching some students recently in the simulation thing, and they had a report that said that, and they they were just perplexed by what, what that all meant, and there was a bit of a joking about it. So I, I explained, and what I said was, coliforms is a term which is quite historical, and the root of the word basically is colon uh, forms, so bacteria that are found in the intestinal tract. It's quite vague. If you want to be more specific, you could say that they're gram-negative uh, rods, which are oxidase-negative and are uh, usually things like E. coli, citrobacteria, etc. So that's what we see. I, I'm not really sure why we still use it, to be honest, because I think it's just a bit a bit loose in its definition. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a colloquialism that sort of means gutty, gutty bacteria. And <clears throat> I think that's got its uses. You know, when somebody says, oh, I found coliforms, you kind of, that narrows down the spectrum of possible identifications to you know, what is only 10 or 12 species. So I understand why it's still used. And I mean, there's plenty of colloquial terms in in microbiology in, in, in particular, like in where I'm working at the moment, they still identify Enterococcus as fecal strep. That's what the code is in the lab uh, system. Now, Enterococci haven't been classified as a streptococci for a long time now, but it takes a while for that to but it uh, takes a while for that to be worked out of the various lab systems, I suppose. Yeah. The other, the other, I guess the other way that coliforms is used is say like water safety testing and you're, you know, maybe you've got a spring up in the highlands and you're um, wanting to check it's, it's, it's fine. You might be looking for coliforms to see if there's fecal contamination. Yes. How many deers have had a poo in this spring well in the last hour <laughs> yeah. or so? Um, and to find it further, they are talked about as being facultively anaerobic and non-spore forming and that they contain the enzyme beta-galactosidase and but i think it's, it's such a loose definition that you know it's yeah i mean that's not how people use it people no. use it as something that looks a bit like e coli yeah they and don't basically they don't got... wonder Ooh, i wonder what beta-galactosidase content of this uh, organism is yeah they just think this looks like e coli this is a gutty organism if it's in the urinary tract time when you've got a skilled biomedical scientist, you know that you'll you'll get your wound swab, you put it onto your blood agar, and then check the growth later on. And you know they'll just they just know what these organisms are. It's amazing. They just you know they just recognise all the different organism colonies by looking at the plate, mm. and so they'll just look at them as a those are coliforms. And they don't need to specify them any further because you're not looking for coliforms and wound swabs. They'll be colonizers, which is how we report them. They'll be looking for staph and strep. So that's that's coliforms. Um, I'm sure everybody was wondering, finally answered. So the other definition that Jane mentioned there, so people probably heard of Enterobacteriaceae. Uh, great word. I love saying that. But Enterobacteriales is maybe something that's coming into the microbiological lexicon uh, slowly. Jane, what, what's the difference? What's an Enterobacteriale? What's an Enterobacteriaceae? Why should we care? Well, I mean, uh, I'm, unless you're a microbiologist, I'm not sure that you should care. 
And uh, I'm pretty sure that as time goes on, these these names will continue to be used interchangeably. But um, as uh, as with uh, streptococci, every few years, the microbiologists like to change the names and the ordering of where the organisms are in the phylogenetic tree so as to keep infectious disease physicians on their toes. And so they have done so with the Enterobacteraceae, reclassifying a bunch of them and moving them out uh, of that family. So C-E-A-E as a suffix means family. And ALES, as in Enterobacteriales, is the uh, order that they belong to. So all of these are still what you would normally consider to be Enterobacteraceae. They're still in the order Enterobacteriales, but a bunch of them have been moved into other families. So... For example, Serratia and Yersinia are now in Yersiniaceae. Morganellaceae contains Morganella proteus and providentia. Hafniaceae contains Hafnia. And Erwiniaceae contains Pantoea. Um, and these are all things which used to be uh, classified as Enterobacteraceae. And Enterobacteraceae as a family still exists and it still contains you know, E. coli, Klebsiella, Intrabacter and uh, Salmonella and Shigella and a few others. Um, but these other things have kind of been moved into other families as their genetics has been um, elucidated further. But they're all still considered to be intrabaterales. So if you want to maintain your scientific accuracy, you can just move up from the family uh, to, the, to, the, to the order and call them intrabaterales and then you will be 100% correct. But if you call them Enterobacteraceae, Callum and I are not going to hunt you down and come around your house with a big stick to beat you. It's perfectly understandable <laughs> that you don't know that Morganella is a Morganellaceae and not an Enterobacteraceae. I, yeah, I feel like this is one of those things where, um, you know, you're maybe in some sort of interview for a microbiology consultant post. And <laughs> at that point... If you said yeah, you better you know, know this enterobacteriaceae instead of enterobacterales, then there's going to be a head rolling. But uh, well, do you know what? There, there'll be a consultant on your interview panel that will care about that. Quite possibly. Do I you know what I mean? Me. Like, like why take the risk? Yeah, it'd be me. Uh, no, no, uh, it won't be me. I won't care. But yeah, so I think that the summary answer there is: don't say enterobacteriaceae, just say enterobacterales, and you'll probably be right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Particularly when you're talking about coliforms you know something that looks a bit like e coli and you know for the rest of this episode we thought that we would we would talk about e coli as the almost the the classical gram-negative uh, organism so let's um talk about the most famous member of the enterobacteriales nice uh, which also is also member of the, yeah <laughs> that's right um wow. which is e coli or escherichia coli yeah, nobody says that because it's really yeah, hard. No. I'm not sure I can actually say it. Escherichiae. Well, that's actually pretty close. Okay, there we go. Yeah, so the Escherichiae is the, the genus. Uh, e. coli is the, the type species for, uh, for Escherichiae. There are other species, which are Albertii, Fergusonii, Hermanii, Marmotii, and Vulneris. They very occasionally get identified by the Molotov. They very occasionally cause disease, but let's be honest, E. coli is the one which causes the most bother in, in humans. Mm. Named after Theodore Escherich for discovering E. coli in the first place. 
there you go that's how you get your name in the history books yeah it's a bit probably a bit late isn't it although i guess there are still bacteria getting renamed or reclassified True, maybe you no, need to get no into genetics not by <laughs> us uh so what do they do what do they do cam do you want to take this what don't they do so what do they do normally callum well normally they live in the lower gastrointestinal tract of mammals they also are quite helpful in that they they produce vitamin k yeah apparently so yeah um so they're a mutualist that produces vitamin k for the benefit of 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 said mammal and they can rep, they can have a doubling time of twenty minutes. Mm. This is this is what makes them so useful in the lab, isn't it? Is that... yeah, they're so rapid growing. They are generally speaking. So if you took your body and you looked at all the E. coli and lined them up, the vast majority of E. coli are going to be healthy, you know, parts of your microbiota, and are just sitting there, maybe helping out a bit, but they're a normal part of your gut tract. So why why are some E. coli pathogenic? James, do you want to talk through this? Yeah, so there are a few pathogenic mechanisms that that a microbiologist needs to know, certainly. And if you're doing your part one, if you're an ID physician, uh, it's not inconceivable that something like this might come up in the exam, in the CIT exam or the FRC path part one exam. So there's there's kind of three big antigen groups or pathogenic mechanisms that uh, are important for E. coli. Um, and one is, is the most famous one is O. So E. coli O157, that's O somatic antigen. And uh, what the O antigen is, it's a bit on the end of lipopolysaccharide in E. coli, and it gets added to the end. And that, uh, you might think, why is it doing this? The, the different O antigens confer resistance to phagocytosis and so that's what makes all 157 in particular uh, so dangerous mm-hmm. uh, and then you've got your k antigen which is a capsule polysaccharide so not all e coli has a capsule but those that do are resistant to uh, complement and uh, there's also a role in biofilm formation um, in chronic infections there's there the k the k antigens are divided into two uh, groups. Group two, there's group one and group two. Group two is associated with extra intestinal uh, disease. And then lastly, there's H antigen, which is actually a flagella. And uh, if you possess a flagella, you are more motile and more likely to uh, to move places and therefore to crawl up a urethra, say, and cause urinary tract infections. So most people think about E. coli as, a, as the thing that causes most urinary tract infections, you know, particularly in women. And that's, that's true, um, but that's not what it's doing normally. Normally, it's sitting in your gut, having a wonderful time and not causing you any bother whatsoever, just supplying you with copious amounts of vitamin K, according to Wikipedia. Um, the uh, pathogenic E. coli are... The reason that they are pathogenic is because they've got various combinations of these um, antigens that have been uh, transmitted to them. There's so many different E. coli with different things that they do depending yeah. on which toxin or... Um... Well, that, that's true. So, I mean, I, I've divided the next part, the clinical syndromes, into common diseases and then the gastroenteritis syndromes, which is divided into watery diarrhea, and and dysenteries um mm-hmm. so cal why don't you take us through 
kind of the, the kind of diseases that E. coli causes usually. Yeah, so the, the, I think that you've already said that UTI it's a, a hugely common urinary tract, a hugely common infection uh, with a large predominance for women, uh, and it's in a way sort of you know under under research disease in some way because you know it's incredibly common and causes a lot of morbidity so uti so yes as james mentioned the, they've got a flagella they're mobile then they're they're more more able to 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 travel and uropathogenic e coli have fimbri that they can use to attach the uropithelium um so they're more likely to less likely to be flushed out of the urinary tract and um, by the flow of urine which is one of the uh, there's several sort of defense um mechanisms of your innate immunity in the urinary tract and one of them is just having good urinary flow but the the, uh, you know because women have a shorter urethra there it's a lot shorter distance for that e coli to sort of swim upstream and and get the um into the urethra and into the uh bladder proper and cause urethritis or cystitis or even going further up to cover upper uti Uh, other common clinical diseases so gastroenteritis which we'll break down in a bit more uh, detail neonatal meningitis so um you don't see e coli causing meningitis in adults but in children the meninges are less well formed and uh it's relatively easy for e coli to um you know if something else is going on um, is that why yeah so the meninges aren't aren't properly formed so you see in in children uh, in neonates really the uh, most common causes of meningitis are e coli and uh group b strep um, and that's related to their exposure to organisms as they come through the female reproductive tract. Yeah, I think we, we probably could talk about meningitis at some point, although maybe we'll do a plug for the Royal College of Physicians clinical conversations topic uh, where they talked about meningitis. Here we go. Uh, UTI, gastroenteritis, neonatal meningitis, uh, hospital-acquired pneumonia or ventilator-acquired pneumonia. So it's not really a cause of community acquired pneumonia but when you're in hospital you're more unwell and there's a degree of well a, a larger degree of micro aspirations and, and aspirations and from the gastrointestinal tract and it's hypothesized that that's why e coli causes um leads to hospital acquired pneumonia and with ventilator acquired pneumonia you know your your airway is not always 100 secure so it's much easier to get uh colonization that way Hemolytic uremic syndrome. So it's not really a, a, an infection, but uh, if you've got uh, sugar toxin producing E. coli strains, then that can uh, trigger hemolytic uremic syndrome, particularly in uh, children at highest risk and elderly adults. Peritonitis. So say you've um, had some sort of intra-abdominal infection or, you know, maybe you're, somebody's got liver cirrhosis and you've got uh, ascites and you get gut translocation. It's a common cause of peritonitis. And so then I'll, I'll take the gastroenteritis clinical syndromes. So these are kind of mostly divided into, into watery diarrhea and, and dysenteries or, or diarrheas, which can be bloody. And so the watery diarrheas, all of this sort of depends on what kind of toxins the E. coli has on board at the time. And they're a very common cause of like uh, traveler's diarrhea and children's diarrhea. Taking ETEC first so these all have kind of special names uh, based on the kind of pathology like the the pathological mechanisms in reality they all just kind of cause like watery diarrhea and so it's impossible to tell one from the other um, but etec would be enterotoxigenic e coli and that is a cause of both travelers and children's diarrhea 
It has two toxins of note, LT or labile toxin and ST or stable toxin. And these are either labile or stable to heat. Um, so if you heat the labile toxin, it will break down. It's an AB toxin, which is very similar to cholera. And then the stable toxin is a toxin which will, in uh, enterocytes, increase cyclic GMP, which will lead to fluid excretion by the GI epithelium, and that will cause the watery diarrhea. It's non-invasive. Then we've got uh, EPEC, enteropathogenic E. coli. It's a cause of diarrhea in children. It's moderately invasive, it's called, as in the E. coli will get into the enterocyte, whereas ETEC is entirely toxin-based. The, the E. coli doesn't actually get into the uh, enterocytes. But uh, EPEC does, and that leads to a shape change and an inflammatory response, which is the, the cause of the, of the diarrhea. They possess a variety of virulence factors, which are very, very similar to Shigella. You will see later on that Shigella and E. coli are, are very closely related to each other. Uh, and then you've got EAEC, or enteroaggregative E. coli, and this is a cause of traveler's diarrhea in North Africa uh, and also Mexico. It is also non-invasive. Interestingly, it's only in humans, as opposed to the first two, which are in a variety of mammalian hosts as well. And then that contains a stable toxin, which is very similar to ETEC. Yeah. And that's it for the watery diarrheas. When it comes to the dysenteries or the bloody diarrheas, they don't always have to be bloody. It's just they have the potential to be because they're more invasive. Uh, so there's EIEC, which is enteroinvasive, and the differential there for EIEC is shigellosis itself, so shigella. They, these people have bloody diarrhea and they've got a high fever, and it's impossible to tell between the two. You have to get a stool sample and, and see what you get. Uh, and then there is enterohemorrhagic E. coli, or it has a bunch of names, but the, the name which is more commonly used now is STEC or shigatoxin-possessing E. coli. And these are associated with certain O groups, the most popular of which is O157. People might think what the O157 is the, is the dangerous bit. There's strains of O157 that don't have Shiga toxin and strains that do. And the strains that do are the ones which are invasive um, and are dangerous. So what's the Shiga toxin? Shiga toxins are, they were first found in Shigella, uh, but they're uh, transmitted to E. coli 2 via a bacteriophage, uh, so a virus which predates on uh, bacteria, infects the E. coli, and carries the gene for this toxin, which is then expressed, and when then helps the bacteria thrive, and in, in thriving it helps the phage virus thrive uh, as well and replicate. So normally, STX are O157, but there have been outbreaks uh, with... Uh, different O serum groups. Most recently, there was one in Germany a few years ago. I don't know if you remember it, Cal. That was a non O157 group. Uh, I forget which group it actually was, but that was uh, uh, Shigatoxin E. coli, but non O157. And what does the Shigatoxin do? Well, it targets vascular endothelium and uh, directly damages it. And this provokes a massive immune response. And that massive immune response leads to necrosis of the gut wall. And, and then breakdown, and then that causes the bloody diarrhea. Hmm. Callum, how do you identify them? Because there's so many different clinical syndromes there. It really it depends on which syndrome that you're looking at. 
Yeah, it's sort of different if you're looking at a urine versus if you're looking at a stool sample, isn't it? Yeah. So, the, you know, the, I guess you could probably divide it slightly into when it's, you know, expecting to find E. coli and when you're not expecting it to E. coli. But in general, so it is a facultative anaerobe, so, it, you know, it likes to respire in the presence of oxygen, but it can do so without. And most E. coli are lactose fermenting, but not all of them. And it's catalase positive and oxidase negative. Say you've got a urine sample, then, you know, you, you get your urine sample, you do a, a semi-quantitative culture, so you get a set amount of urine and plate it out. And you usually, most labs will use a, um, an agar that has certain materials in it so that it's um, chromogenic. So um, the different organisms will pick up different uh, colors or will ferment different compounds within the agar to change colors. So most of the time when you're getting E. coli from urine, uh, you do the plate and it comes out of the set color that E. coli is. And then you, uh, you can actually just identify it. You can just say, it's, they're, they're amazing, actually, the agars. They're good enough that you can just say that's E. coli from the agar. You don't need to do any further identification. You put it in the Vitec and get your um, sensitivities. Yeah, yeah it's, sensitivities. it's crazy how good it is these days. Um, but yeah, so I mean, the, the loyal listener might think, why why identify it at plate level? Why not wait and put it into the Molotov? Well, it, it takes more time to do that. And so if you've got a urine sample and you, you have this chromogenic agar, which will throw up, you know, based on a couple of enzymes that the, the, the colony has or doesn't have, pink colonies or dark blue colonies or green colonies. And you can say, well, that pink one is an E. coli and that dark blue one's an Enterococcus, blah, blah, blah. And then you can just throw it into the Vitec. You've saved valuable amounts of time. Yeah. The turnaround um, so, time is key for... And the urine samples are... I think they're not the biggest num the biggest sample number that you get in. I think so, so you know it's either urine or blood. Yeah, you really want efficiency in in that sample type. So yeah, they're 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 really cool. In terms of other clinical syndromes, so meningitis, you're obviously going to get a, a sterile sample of uh, CSF. Um, same with blood, that you'll plate out on blood agar and it'll grow very well on that. And you usually plate out put a McConkey agar up, which will tell you if it's lactose fermenting or not. And so, yeah, anything from a sterile site, you're just going to be setting up and E. coli grows well on, on most culture plates if it's non-selective. And then for stool, so there's obviously lots of E. coli there. So what are you looking for? Well, you're looking for the main reason you're looking for E. coli in stool is you're looking for the dysentery type uh, E. coli. So the enterohemorrhagic shigatoxin producing E. coli. That's really what you're interested in. All the other forms of traveler's diarrhea, you know, we know that the E. coli causes them and it is a very common cause, the most common cause of things like traveler's diarrhea. But we don't test for them because generally they're self-limiting and you wouldn't treat with antibiotics anyway. So by culture, whereas with uh, sugar toxin producing E. coli, we know that if you give people antibiotics, it can uh, worsen uh, the effect. So we kind of want to know, you know, is it Shigella? Um, in which case you might give them some antibiotics um, or is it a sugar toxin producing E. coli when you're like, you don't want to give them antibiotics because you're going to increase their risk of hemolytic uremic syndrome. Mm. So the process for that historically has been a selective agar. So, so yeah, you've got your clinical specimen of stool and you get to inoculate uh, for stool. You're looking for other things. You're doing like an XLD agar and you'll, looking for all the organisms doing sort of looking for other things but for specifically sugar toxin producing e coli we're going to get a sorbitol mcconkey plate and uh, generally speaking e coli 157 are non-sorbitol fermenting whereas other e coli 
ferments orbitals. So on the sorbitol McConkie plate, if you get a colorless colony, then you'll be like, oh, that might be 0157. And um, at that stage, you usually do some uh, glutination tests with an anti-serum. Uh, and if it's positive, then you you provisionally say this is probably E. coli 157, and you go off and do other tests. Um, if that's negative, then the, the complicated thing here is, and I had a really interesting chat with one of the public health doctors about this this once, trying to explain it, and it's a bit hard to get your head around. So I think, as James said earlier on, um, if you've got an E. coli 0157, then that's you know the main cause of this sort of syndrome and the risk of HUS, which is what we're really worried about. But it could also be a non-0157, which has gigatoxin. Uh, so that's another option. And that can be any sort of O number. Or sometimes 0157 do ferment sorbitol, rarely. So you might miss it in your initial culture. Or you can have an 0157, which did have the toxin, but then lost it. So, you know, the bacteriophage comes in and brings the toxin. The patient acquires that and then they get the clinical syndrome. But by the time you're sending the sample and getting into the lab and testing it, that E. coli might have lost the toxin, mm. um, in which case you won't find it. So there's quite a lot of complexity there. So I think that the move now is that we actually just do PCR for the sugar toxin one and two genes. Uh, and there's also a, a PCR that you can do to look for uh, one five seven, um, and that's really where we're moving with uh, this. You know, the, the culture is um, is has a really important role, but I think PCR is the the future. Um, and actually, yeah, if you look at the data from the the reference lab, there is quite a lot of. The other problem is that we identify a lot of, say, O one five seven in people that have diarrhea, but is that the actual culprit? Specifically, if it's lost, if it's lost a toxin, because we know we can do that, but you might also just have an 0157 E. coli that doesn't have the sugar toxin and never did, um, yeah. and isn't the cause yeah. of diarrhea. So with PCR coming in, if you're going to PCR everybody and then find all these people, um, I think that the difficulty we will um, is saying, and this is with a lot of molecular techniques, is what's the, the clinical significance of this? It'll be a lot easier to pick up, and we'll pick up a lot more of it. But obviously, our baseline rate of hemolytic urine syndrome won't change. So what you'll have is more people that you're identifying this in. Anyway, I think that'll be really interesting. And that's just a general, I guess, reflection on molecular techniques and how that's going to change results. I, you know, I could talk about this for, for a long time. Evidently. Yes. Um, you know, you know, on that, that note, if you look at people that have, say, campylobacter, which could cause a bloody diarrhea and then send their stool off and look for E. coli 157, you sometimes find it. Which one is causing the disease there? Yeah, true. So yes, uh, once you've identified the organism on your on your um, sorbitol McConkie garden, and you would send it off, and um, you'd probably be doing it off to to check that you've got the right thing. But you know, it's not a hard organism to grow. It doubles very quickly. It grows well in vitro in the laboratory, uh, and it's relatively easy to identify. So you know, yeah. But but a word of caution with the Maldatov is that. I mean, it will, it will come in no, as no surprise, uh, given that it shares uh, toxins with Shigella a lot. E. coli can be mixed up with Shigella or confused with Shigella because they're very genetically uh, similar to each other. And the, um, in, in particular, the ribosomal RNA, which is what the Maldatov is looking at, are very similar to, uh, to one another. Mm. So I think that's all the lab ID that we want to talk about. Good. Let's murder these bugs. Okay. How, how are we going to kill E. coli? 
Well, I, I thought I would put this in here because we're not going to repeat this for every organism. Uh, rather, what I thought was we would include all the organisms that would cover intrabattery ACI. And when we mention a bug in the future, we will mention kind of deviations from this. So, for example... You mean intrabatterialis? Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. What would I do without you? I think you also said um, organism rather than antibiotic, but that's fine. All right. Um, hang on. I'm going to start again. Yeah. No. You're going to stick, you're going to own it. No, I'm going to own it. Yeah, okay. I'm going to own it. That's so anyway, fine. how do we kill these organisms with antibiotics? Um, so we'll, we'll mention deviations from, from this kind of list. So for example, Klebsiella has a constitutive penicillinase. So you can't use amoxicillin. Uh, for Klebsiella's, but you can use other stuff like, you know, Comoxclav, you know, for example. Um, so anyway, so say you wanted to kill E. coli. These are the things that you can normally use unless it has resistances and gram negatives are very good at acquiring resistances because they all live together and they all swap, swap their nodes. Um, but you could use, uh, in terms of beta lactams, you could use amoxicillin, uh, you could use temicillin, Piptaz, you can use just about any cephalosporin. Uh, carbapenems, astrianam, all cover it. Uh, you can use all uh, quinolones from naladixic acid upwards. Uh, you can use aminoglycosides, gentamicin, tobramycin, uh, trimethoprim, cotrimoxazole, the antifolates. You can use nitrofurantoin, and you can use phosphomycin. And as Callum said, the time when you wouldn't want to use antibiotics... Uh, but the uh, one time when you wouldn't want to use antibiotics is if you're dealing with an STEC or an O157. And the reason is uh, there's a theoretical risk of massive endotoxin release. Um, and so if you kill all the bugs and they release all their endotoxin, that can lead to a massive uh, shock, septic shock response. Uh, and in particular, uh, the use of quinolones, and don't ask me what this mechanism, how this mechanism occurs, uh, but the use of quinolones has been associated with induction of the phage virus and hyperproduction uh, of the Shiga toxin, which we don't want. Uh, so for STX and uh, E. coli 157, you wouldn't want to use antibiotics. You would if it was a bog standard UTI, of course. So this loyal listener is why you shouldn't automatically give antibiotics if somebody presents with gastroenteritis and because it can worsen their clinical outcome. Okay. Talked about E. coli then. Yeah, so that was that was E. coli. So just so that people know, we're going to spend the rest of the the, the next few episodes talking about the rest of the intrabacterialis. So we're going to start with Klebsiella, and then we'll probably just talk about the rest of them in uh, uh, the next two to three episodes. And so we'll we'll cover the whole of the intrabacterialis uh, and then move on to the. Uh, smaller gram-negative bacilli, the powerful bacteria, so the HASX and the non-HASX. Questions, comments, suggestions? Why don't you send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com? Until next time, I'm Jane. I'm Callum. See you then.